We are in week four of our series titled Immeasurably More. As I had mentioned earlier, we are talking about what God is doing here over the next three to five years. Some short-term things, some longer-term things. We'll be getting some of the longer-term things uh, in a couple of weeks. So we're kind of in the short-term um, the short-term section of this series, but I do want to recap really briefly where we've been. In week one of the series, we had Dr. Dave Ritter come in, and he shared with us uh, what we learned during a vision uh, meeting that we had way back in January with the elders and staff. We came together, we did a SWOT analysis, talked about our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats as a church body. And what we discovered then in week one was that we essentially need to um, fill some staff gaps and some space issues need to be addressed within uh, our church. In week two then, as I had mentioned again, we talked about this kind of foundational issue that as a growing church in a region that doesn't grow churches very well, we have irritated the enemy and so we are at war and we need to be then a people who are uh, more dependent upon God in our trust and in our dependence, um, in our prayer, and our understanding of God's word and of our preaching of the gospel. These are the weapons that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 that we have at our disposal to fight this war and to fight it well. And then last week, if you were with us, we discussed how we are planning to raise up 23 additional staff-level positions to meet the needs of our growing church, uh, to help us accomplish all that God has called us to accomplish, high-capacity leaders that are going to give, be given a lot of authority, um, to raise up teams to do what God has called them to do. Now, acknowledging, however, that such a robust staff will require oversight and new systems, new structures, new stat- strategies, we are also planning to hire um, an additional person to help oversee a lot of those uh, as an executive role. Uh, but beyond that, we need to bolster our financial support to Treehouse. Treehouse is the, the youth program that meets here, um, and I'm so excited for Treehouse uh, and all that God is doing through them. The stories are just incredible. And next week, actually, Josh Ritter is going to join me here, and we're going to have just a conversation uh, for, for a good portion of the, of the morning about what Treehouse is accomplishing, um, because so many of the funds that we hope to raise um, throughout this campaign are going to be going to Treehouse. We want to really highlight what God is doing with the youth in our area and, give, and bring hope to the youth in our area. Um, and then we also want to just, you know, raise up and release finances so we can do more in our community for our community. All that is to say, we are looking, as if you were with us last week, we talked about this, if we are looking to raise our uh, budget to $72,000 um, for the next fiscal year. You can, break, you can see how that's all broken down, um, all the way down to the individual level per week or per month. Uh, some of you already last week, uh, 10 people said that they were going to, you know, hand it in the cards that we'll pass out again later in the service, but 10 people said that they would contribute um, for, for a total of uh, already 600 a week. So we're already 10% of the, of the way there with just 10 people handing in cards. Some of you said that you'd give an extra $5 a week. Some of you said you'd give an extra $50 a week to the cause of Christ here. And anytime we talk about money here at Restoration Church, the, my, my first reaction is to thank you to contributing to the cause of Christ here. It does not go unnoticed. The generosity of our people is amazing. It is inspiring. And God is doing such a good work through the resources that are given. Now, let me tell you why this excites me. One of the convictions that I have regarding money is that um, money can add meaning to our lives, but money is not the meaning of our life. And I, I developed this conviction from a pastor in Georgia named Andy Stanley. His, his teaching on money is, is phenomenal. Money can add meaning to our lives. But it is not the meaning of life. And, and as much as our 
culture would like to tell us that really money and the acquisition of stuff and more possessions is really the meaning of life, I think we all know this is true, right? That money can certainly add meaning to our life, but it is not the meaning of life. Money is a much better, better means than an end. So if you make money the end, you may end up alone. But using money as a means to an end is really what makes money meaningful. And being a means to an end is what makes anything meaningful, I think. The thing that makes anything or anyone meaningful is when that thing or that person becomes a means to an end. That's what it means to have meaning, to be a means to an end. And I think it's true for you as well, not just your money, it's true for you as well. If you want to live a meaningful life, you have to figure out how to become a means to an end that is not yourself. That is beyond you. There's got to be a greater purpose for your life than simply you. And when you decide to be a means to an end, your money becomes a means to an end as well. And you'll begin to view your resources and your money and your net worth as tools to accomplish that end. And surprise, this is exactly what Jesus taught in one of his parables. Now, within the parables that Jesus taught, he has about 30 parables, depending on how you count them. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but 16 of them talk about money and possessions. It was his most favorite topic, and so we were talking about that this morning. But Luke recorded this um, in regards to what Jesus had said in one of his parables. He said this, Jesus told his disciples. Now, the disciples were the general group of people who followed Jesus everywhere that he went. There was a rich man. They knew immediately this wasn't an actual story, a true story. This is something Jesus is making up to illustrate a point. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So there was a rich man who had so much money and wealth to manage that he couldn't manage it all. So he hired someone to come in and manage his money for him. Someone who would buy and sell and trade in his name. And this rich man caught wind that the man he hired to manage his possessions and his wealth was not doing an honest job of doing it. He was being dishonest and unethical. And this made the owner of the possessions very nervous. And so the owner called the manager to him and asked, what is this I hear about you? See, word on the streets is that you're not being responsible with my resources. You're not being responsible with my money. You're not representing me well, and you're not being accountable with my wealth. And so give an account of your management. Get your books together. I want to see how you've been handling my resources. Come on, give me your books, because you cannot be my manager any longer. He fires him because of how he has been handling his wealth. The manager said to himself, and this is really the key, what should I do now? Oh no, I wasn't expecting this. I wasn't expecting to be fired. What should I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, right? I'm an inside guy. I've lived my life in front of the computer screen. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I mean, I have my pride, and, and suddenly this guy in the parable finds himself with just a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity to figure out where he's going to go and if anybody is going to take him in. And so he thinks about it and he comes up with an idea. I know what I will do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. He comes up with a plan so that when he's no longer employed by the rich guy, when he no longer has a paycheck and he doesn't know how to put food on his table or a shelter over his head, he'll have somewhere to go 
and some place and, and someone to take care of him. So he called in one of his master's debtors, each one of his master's debtors. And the master probably had a ton of debtors. We only get two examples in this parable. But the master probably had a lot of debtors. He called in every single one of those people who owed his master money. And he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? Well, I owe your master 900 gallons of olive oil. Well, the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly before anybody sees, before anybody knows what's going on, before I am like, you know, the security guard comes and drags me out of here. Come in quickly. I only have a little bit bit of time. And I only have a little bit of opportunity. So come in quickly. I need to take full full advantage of the time I have. Sit down quickly and make it, I don't know, 450. And the guy probably thought, wow, absolutely, that's a phenomenal deal. Really, really, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, make it 450, he says. Okay, so I'm going to cut this check. I'm going to write it out. Here you go. My debt is now paid. And by the way, you know, that's so generous of you. By the way, if you ever need anything, make sure to call me. Huh, he said, okay, you know. I'm thinking that pretty soon I might need your help with something. Then he asked a second of the debtors, and how much do you owe? Well, I owe a thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Just 800? That's so kind. That's so generous. You know, if you are ever in need of anything, call upon me because I would be happy to come to your assistance. Oh, I might be calling on you sooner than you think. And the implication is that he did this over and over and over again to all the people who gave, or who owed his master money. He gave huge discounts. And now think about it. When the boss finds out, what is the boss going to do? When he finds out that this man has been dishonest with his money, what is he going to do? I mean, everyone listening in Jesus' day, they're wondering the same thing. What's going to happen? The manager is probably going to, what, imprison him? I don't know, execute him, string him up. I don't know, he's going to do something horrible to this man because he is being dishonest even more with this money, even after he's been fired for being dishonest. He's going and he is giving every of these people generous discounts. And because Jesus is the master tor- storyteller, everybody's leaning in, wondering what's going to happen. But of course, Jesus in his storytelling, he loves to flip the script upside down. He never tells it how we think it obviously ought to work. We all assume that the dishonest manager is about to get into big trouble, but if we thought that, we would be wrong. The master commended, he complimented, he smiled, he high-fived him, he slapped his knee, and he laughed, and he said, you got me, you got me. He commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. He commended him because The guy thought it through with his future in mind. He only had a little bit of time. He only had a little bit of opportunity. And so he thought it through. And everyone is so confused, right? Because this man should be in trouble. But you're telling me that the rich man commended the crook? I mean, come on, what's going on here, Jesus? What are you trying to communicate? What's the point of all this? And Jesus has us right where he wants us. And at this point, he steps out of the parable. He's done telling the story, and he begins to teach about the story. That in the kingdom of heaven, the way God views our wealth and our possessions and our resources is way different than the world teaches us to view it all. See, for the people of this world, the people who live their life as if this life is all that there is, that when you die, you're going to lie in a grave and there is no eternity, there's nothing else to live for, that this is it. For the people of this world are more shrewd, right? They're more thoughtful. They think things through better in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. 
The Jewish people, yes, who had the promises, but that is transposed onto us now, the people who believe that there is more to life than this life. That when we die, there is an eternity waiting for us. The money manager was commended for taking full advantage of his limited time and his limited opportunity. Not because he was dishonest. Because he took full advantage of his little bit of time and his little bit of opportunity. And Jesus' point is, we need to do the same. We need to do the same. That we need to look at the little bit of time that we have and the little bit of opportunity we have. And we need to take full advantage of the resources given us. That when it comes to our money and our wealth and our income, we are to view it within the context, not just of this life, but of the broader context of all of eternity. And we are to ask the question, how do I get maximum use out of it in light of the little bit of time I have and the little bit of opportunity? And then Jesus leans in and he gets very, very specific. So specific, in fact, that um, when Emily and I finally kind of grasped this teaching and we kind of internalized these principles, it changed our, our worldview. It changed our view of money. It changed our priorities. It, it changed the way we viewed money and the way we dealt with our money. It changed everything about it. Jesus gives an imperative, a command to those who follow Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, you don't have to listen to this. If you're not a Christian, this isn't for you. Jesus doesn't have any authority over your life. I don't have any authority over your life. You don't have to listen to anything I have to say. But if you are a Christian, you need to listen to this because this is a command. It is an imperative. Jesus leans in and he says this. I tell you. I tell you, right? Pay attention. I'm talking to you now. This isn't a story any longer. I'm stepping out of the story. Now I'm teaching. I tell you. Use. Why? Why use? Because it is a means to an end. It's a tool. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Like the money manager did. So that when it is gone, because it's going to be gone, One way or another, your money will be gone. One way or another, if you still have money on your deathbed, guess what, my friends? When you die, it's not going with you. One way or another, your money is going to be gone. So that when it will be gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You see, there's something Jesus is saying. There's something that we can do with the temporary wealth that we have and this itty-bitty spot in life that we have that makes an eternal difference. That we can use our resources that we've been giving now that will make an eternal difference. Your money and my money and your possessions and my possessions. Money is a means. It is not an end. It is a means to an end that goes beyond us. And Jesus says that it goes actually even beyond this life. And the implication is that our right now resources have a potential to make a forever difference. We can't take it with us. It's going to be gone. But there is a way for us to have something to show for it when we are gone. It is a means to an end. It is a tool. Now, if Jesus is right, uh, it means that we should view, and, and you should view, and I should view, not just a percentage of what we have 
as to be made available to our Heavenly Father. It means that we should view 100% of everything that we have to be available to our Heavenly Father. We should use 100% of what we have as a means to an end that is not us. And the question we should begin to ask as Jesus followers is, how can I leverage more of what I have as a means to an end that is not me? How can I leverage more of what I have as a means to an end that goes beyond that which might benefit me? When Emily and I were first married, we didn't do this very well. We lived, you know, paycheck to paycheck, essentially, and, and we would, you know, spend as much as we could throughout the month, and if there was anything left over, we would give it away to the local church. But there came a day about five years into our marriage, after being convinced and convicted that we are managers of somebody else's resources, that it is not ours, that we are simply managers of somebody else's resources, that we decided what percentage of our income we were going to live on. And that may seem strange, but the reason I say this is because we all live on a percentage of our income. You guys get that? You have a certain percentage of money that comes in, and you all live on a certain percentage of it. And if we do not decide what percentage of our income we are going to live on, our culture is going to dictate that for us. And so why not decide ahead of time what percentage we are going to live on? And the journey, you know, it was certainly a journey for us, but it was one of conviction. It wasn't one of condemnation. It was one of conviction that we are managers. And it was a shift in understanding and a shift in priorities for us. We decided that we were going to live on 89% of our income, that we were going to take 10% off the top and we were going to give it away to our local church. And then we were going to take 1% in addition to that and we were going to give it away to local causes, Compassion International, Treehouse, um, other, other missional endeavors that, that we believed in. And that's grown throughout the years. We live on about 85% now of our income and we, we give the rest away. But it's still a journey and it's not always easy and we don't always do it well. But we love restoration, and that's why we make the choices that we do to give a portion of our income to the cause of Christ here. And I believe that you love Restoration Church too. I really do believe that, and that's why you give. And there are so many places that you could invest your resources. I get that. And so the first thing I I always say in regards to giving is thank you, because I understand that there's so many people that you could, or so many causes that you could give your finances to. And I don't know what level you give or how much money you make or what percentage you've chosen to give away and what percentage you've chosen to live on. But the statistics are are actually very fascinating, I think. When you look at the restoration giving statistics, what you'll discover is that first, we are on pace with only one month left in our fiscal year to actually meet our budget. If you remember about, um, you know, three or four months ago, uh, Brian came forward and he he said, we're $12,000. We are anticipating being... Uh, $12,000 below our budget. Well, we've essentially closed that gap, um, which is super exciting. And so thank you for that. That is, that is, we're in a really, really great place to be financially. But second, there are 117 giving units um, that, you know, on, on average give every single month to the cause of Christ here at Restoration Church, averaging $194 a month. But if you break that down a little further, you'll see that the vast majority of units give between $1 and $100. 68, over, over half of them give, uh, over half of you give within that uh, frame. And that's great. That's exactly where Emily and I were 10 years ago. Um, so that, that's, you're, you're giving. That's a, that's a phenomenal place to start. But break, break this down a little further, however, and you'll see that six units give 41% of all the money that come into Restoration Church. So there are essentially six households or six families or six giving units that give nearly half of all the money that come in. 
And so forever, those of who you are, thank you, because we would not exist without your generosity. And the reality is, if you give it all, if you are any one of these numbers, we wouldn't exist without the generosity of this people. That's just the reality. We wouldn't be doing what we are doing without the generosity of the people contributing to the cause of Christ here. And I don't say this to shame anybody. You, you know where you are on this. Um, but I do say this hopefully to stretch you. And to help you maybe consider the choices that you make. And Emily and I need to consider the choices we make as well. Thinking back on Emily and I's journey, it was a process of conviction. Again, not condemnation. It was a process of conviction that everything we have is entrusted to us by God to manage. And managing it required action. And it didn't matter how much money came in. We were going to live on a percentage. And we decided that if we were going to err, we were going to err on the side of generosity. Because we, as managers... We are the managers of the resources of a very generous God. We believe that. And that's not always easy. And again, we haven't done it perfectly, but our conviction was that if we were going to be generous people, then we were going to have to start making different choices. And we're going to have to look at how much we were eating out at night and ask if that was healthy and ask if that was generous. And we had to ask ourselves if when we went to Target, if our undisciplined caused us to throw $100 of stuff in the cart when we went there for toothpaste, if that was generous and if that was responsible. But what happened throughout the years was that we turned stuff into stories. My friends, we turned stuff into stories. And we don't miss the stuff. We, we, don't, we don't miss the stuff. The stories are still very emotional to us, though. We had, there, there was a, a friend, Emily and I were just reflecting on this. We had a friend who, um, she, she was living with another friend in Minnesota, uh, where we were living at the time, and her, her roommate got pregnant and basically kicked her out, said, you need to be out this weekend. She had nowhere to go. And she had bounced around from friend to friend from friend all over the Twin Cities. And, um, and we said, Angela, Angela, dude, you know, we, I didn't say dude, probably, but Angela, we, um, <laughs> <laughs> we have a room in our basement that's sitting empty. And, uh, and it's a, there's a bathroom next door to it. Like, we come and live with us. You, you have had such a hard time getting on your feet. She had nowhere to go. She had nowhere to turn. And she couldn't afford a down payment on a house. She couldn't afford rent by herself. And we said, come and live with us. We'll pay your electricity. We'll pay your water. You can eat out of our refrigerator. You can eat out of our cupboards. You can have the space rent-free. And she lived there for 17 months. And at the seven, end of 17 months, she had enough money to put a down payment on her own, own home that she has been living in now for the last 11 years. And she has done the same for other people. So it's kind of trickled and it's kind of, you know, created this, this kind of this, uh, culture of generosity. And it's been so cool to see. We don't miss the stuff. Yeah, we had to pay for her electricity and her water. And yeah, we could have charged her rent, but we don't care. We don't miss the stuff. We have this very emotional story that goes along with our generosity. And when we think about all the opportunities we had because we decided ahead of time that everything we have is in play, not just our money, but all of our resources are in play, that all of our resources are available, we begin to ask the question of how do we use more of what is front, in front of us to benefit people and to advance the kingdom of God? And the number of dollars really is irrelevant, right? It's, it's all about pre-deciding ahead of time that it's all God's. 100% of it is God's. And I am simply a manager of it. And here is the percentage that I am going to contribute to the cause of Christ. And here is the percentage that I am going to live on. And here's what I know about each of us, right? We all factor in various things into our money 
decisions and our financial decisions and our giving decisions and our spending decisions. We all factor. I don't know what they are for you, but we all have factors. You may not write them down. You may not even know what they are, but we all have factors that help us make decisions in regard to our money. And so here's just one thing. Here's just one question that I want you to begin factoring into your decisions in regards to money. Do you want more stuff? Or do you want more stories? And let me give you a tip. No one's going to talk about your stuff at your funeral. They're going to tell stories. And so do you want more stuff or do you want more stories? Now you need to know that every time you give to the cause of Christ here, the Restoration Church story becomes part of your story. That every baptism and every life change and every marriage that is restored and every transformed adult, I mean, they all become your story when you contribute to the cause of Christ here at Restoration Church. I think of all the stories that have been shared. And this summer, we're going to tell a lot of stories. It's going to be a really fun summer. We're going to be telling stories all the time. Stories of life changed through restoration. I think of all the stories that have been shared and all the people that have come to faith and changed their eternity because we exist here. And never once did I regret giving to the cause of Christ here after having hearing one of the stories. Never once did I, did I leave a message after interviewing someone about how their life has been changed and transformed here at Restoration Church that I go home and watch uh, uh, you know, the Eagles play and said, you know what? Man, you know what? If I didn't give to the cause of Christ at Restoration Church, I could have 10 more inches on my television to watch this game on. Never once did I say that. Never once did I say, you know what? I could go on a seven-night vacation instead of a six-night. But that person's life may not be, have, have been changed. Never once would I have traded the life change for more stuff. And I don't think you would either. I don't miss the money. I wouldn't trade the money for the transformation. And yeah, I get that we've got to make a living and, you know, we've got to pay bills. And I'm not advocating irresponsible generosity. I just think that you should factor this in to the way that you manage your money. I think you should factor these questions in. Do you want more stuff or do you want more stories? And so, so here's Jesus' point in all this. Money can certainly add meaning to your life when you use it as a means to an end that goes beyond yourself. And so the teaching in the parable isn't quite over yet. Jesus says this, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And so I tell you, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Now you might think that you have a little, or you may think that you have a lot. But no matter how much you have, the point is that your money, your wealth, your possessions— Not only is it a means to an end, not only is it a tool, but from the kingdom of God perspective, it's also a test. Like the manager of the man in the parable, we have a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity. And we are being tested to determine what kingdom we are most devoted to. The bookended kingdom of this world or the kingdom that goes beyond the bookends of our physical lives. Which kingdom are we most devoted to? And our money is a test. But he's not quite done yet either. If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, and we think, wait, 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 Jesus, I am the one who goes to work to earn the paycheck, and the paycheck comes in my name, and so it's mine. The the deed to the car is in my name. The title of the house, like, these are all in my name. I am the owner of these things. What are you talking about? Someone else's property. Now, if you have not been trustworthy with somebody else's property, who will give you property of your own? Here's the thing, if, if your money could talk, if the dollar bills in your wallet could form a voice and begin to speak to you, I think it would confirm exactly what Jesus is trying to teach here. 
If our money could talk, I think it would say, I'll still be here when you're gone. And the moment you think you own me, guess what? I actually own you. Because we all, like the money manager in the parable, we are managers. We are not owners. And the way we know that we are not owners is that if you're going to leave it behind, and clearly we're all going to leave it all behind, then we never owned it to begin with. It wasn't really ours. We are just managing it. But here's the real question. Who are you managing it for? You know, if, if you're just stardust, if you're just an accident by evolution, by natural selection, if you just happen to come into existence, then I don't really have an answer for your question of who you're answering it for because you're going to leave it behind still. That's a fact. I mean, you're not going to take it in the grave with you. It's not going to benefit you there. But if in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and if in the beginning God created humans in his image, and if in the beginning God created us with a vocation to be responsible stewards and managers of his resources, then suddenly this all makes perfect sense. And Jesus would say, manage it well. And don't get confused, because if your money could talk, it would remind us that it is a means to an end. It is a tool. It is not a test. It can add meaning to our lives, but it is not the meaning to life. And so what do we do do with all this? And where do we even start? You know, for those of you who are Jesus followers and you hate the greed that bubbles up in you, it's like, you know, you, your heart is stirred about this great cause and you sit down to write that check and all of a sudden you're just like, oh, I'm going oh, to put one less zero than way maybe my heart is telling me to put. Or you open up your wallet and you take out the five instead of the 20, even though your heart tells you to be generous. The place to start is where Jesus points us to. The the place is not an amount of money, nor is it even a percentage. The place to start is a bigger question that goes beyond all that. The the question most people never even stop to ask and consequently never even have an answer for. And here's the question then I want to leave you with. If being a means to an end is what gives life meaning, gives anything meaning, to what end do you want your life to be a means? What do you want people to celebrate about you when you're gone? Oh, he just had so much great stuff. I had, to, I had to go through his house and I had to throw 75% of his hoarding addiction away. Do you want more stuff or do you want more stories? If you don't answer this question, my friends, your appetite will answer it for you. You guys, you guys get that? If you don't answer this question, your appetites will answer this for you, and I know what your answer is, and I don't think your answer is more stuff, more consumption, more accumulation, fashion, a house full of trinkets. I don't think that's it. But if you decide to what ends you want your life to be a means, if you don't decide to what ends you, li- you want your life to be a means, my friends, your, our culture is going to drag you in that direction. Our culture will drag you towards consumption, to more stuff, less stories. But when you answer the big question, you're going to start wrapping your heart around the answer to the big question. My friends, your, your money is going to start to follow. Because money is a means to an end. It is a tool. It is not a goal. And when you answer the big question, something begins to happen in you. And in your heart. But until you answer this question, 
the culture will just drag you away into more consumption, into more consumerism. And I think that would be a shame. Because you'll have more stuff and you'll have fewer stories to tell. And you'll have more stuff, but there'll be less life change. And so I want you to wrestle with this. If being a means to an end is what gives your life meaning, to what end do you want your life to be a means? My friends, your money will follow the answer that you provide that question. I'm going to invite uh, the ushers forward to receive these, <clears throat> these blue cards. I'm going to invite the band forward. We're going to sing a short portion of a song as we conclude our service together. <laughs> Sorry, this is going so late this morning. On this blue card that, uh, that we received last week and this week, there are a, a number of boxes to check off. The first one is just a call to prayer. What is God calling me to do? How is he calling me to contribute? How is he calling me to live my life? Not just as a, as a restoration church person, if that's true of you, but as a human being upon this planet. With the resources he has entrusted me, how is he calling me to live? The, the second box um, is, a, is a call to action. That maybe I'm not giving financially to the cause of Christ. Again, we have this goal of raising our, our budget $72,000. Um, ridiculous goal, perhaps, but we believe in a God of the immeasurably more. Um, am I willing to give up a Starbucks each week to give greater to the cause of Christ here? Am I willing to eat out less, one less time a month so that more could be contributed to the cause of Christ here? To manage my resources differently, to raise the percentage of which I'm willing to give. If you're not ready to fill this out today, that's totally fine. If you're ready, you can take it, fill it out, send it back to the Next Step kiosk. We'll, we'll gather them there. But if you're not ready, I would encourage you just to take this. Put it on your dashboard. Put it on your refrigerator. Put it in a place where you can look at it and pray about it. And then ask God, what are you calling me to do? And then, you know what? When you hear God calling you to do something, the most appropriate response is always action. God may call you to do something so significant, but he will never change the world through you unless you move on it. And so we have a huge responsibility to manage God's resources well, and I pray that we would be a church that do it faithfully and do it generously. Thanks for all that you contribute already. I love this body so very much. I'm excited for the future of Restoration Church.